and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and boy, is my back jacked up. Jack! Uh, not really. I'm, I'm feeling better now, but if you guys have been following my adventures here or on NeedlessThingsSite.com or possibly even on SupportPhantom.com, then you know that I've been having some back issues for the past month or so. Uh, well, for the, I mean, for the past few years on and off, but this past month has been particularly rotten. Uh, I managed to get everything back together for Dragon Con, had a few great days of pain-free movement and activity, and then right when I got back home, started hurting again. I am starting to suspect that stress from my day job is part of the problem, maybe, I don't know, uh, but it's definitely, it sucks. I had to leave work uh, Monday night because I, I couldn't sit in the chair. It was too painful for me. And and my job is a very high-stress, uh, high-focus-requiring thing. So if you're in there and distracted in any way, you don't need to be in there. And I was legitimately afraid I was going to screw something up. So I, I told him I had to get some relief, and somebody got there after about an hour, and I went home. And then Tuesday... I called in and, and said that I, I had to take a couple of days to recover. I went to the doctor. The doctor gave me some muscle relaxers. Uh, and, and I'm now, it is Wednesday. I am recording this for you lovely people. And I, I feel a little better. There's still some tightness back there. There's still some discomfort. But I'm getting by. And I get to get up bright and early in the morning at... 5 o'clock a.m. so that I can be at a meeting at 8 o'clock a.m. for four hours to sit in the most uncomfortable chairs man has ever devised that did not actually have nails sticking out of them into the person sitting in them. And then I get to go back Friday night and work three nights in a row for 12 hours each. I'm not excited about that, you guys, but I got to do it because I got to make money because supportphantom.com <laughs> it's not quite paying the bills yet. Uh, speaking of supportphantom.com, I want to give a shout out to my big supporters, Bo, Zach, and Lucas. And I also want to tell you guys, please go visit thesilversmusic.com. Uh, they are wonderful guys and big supporters of the Needless Things podcast, so you should absolutely go check them out and support those guys. And I also, even though I... I want that money. I want that sweet, sweet podcast money. I've got to also tell you to go check out our friends Handmade Stuffs on Patreon. Uh, they are doing a bang-up job with their rewards. They're offering some really cool, amazing stuff that I'm very tempted by myself. But I need all the Patreon money I can get right here at home. So I'm telling you guys, just go to Patreon and look for Handmade Stuffs, and you're going to see a uh, product and a person worth supporting so check that out as well and she she doesn't even know i'm giving her that shout out so that that's how much i i dig her stuff and how long she's been a friend of the show since heroes con uh years ago uh but anyway moving on my back is getting there i am hopeful that i can make it through the whole weekend uh because 
and it's not like I want to be at work. I would much rather be at home watching Superman the Animated Series and Justice League Unlimited and hanging out with my family uh, and smelling wonderful, wonderful Tiger Balm. By the way, another shout-out. Shout-out to Tiger Balm and shout-out to my wife's friend, whose name I'm not going to mention because I, I don't know how namely we want to get on here. But uh, one of my wife's friends brought us the Tiger Balm, and she is quite easily the second most wonderful person on the planet because i i'd never tried or heard of this stuff i didn't know what it was and it helps my back immensely and it smells like a delicious exotic dessert or maybe some kind of like uh thing you would want to dip sweet cookies into and eat i love the smell of tiger balm i love that it helps my back out it's the best stuff ever so shout out to tiger balm and shout out to Mrs. Troublemaker's wonderful friend. Thank you all around. All right, so I'm sitting here now. I'm not currently in any pain. Uh, and, and another thing about Dragon Con, I, I very much suspect that the fact that I was moving the whole time and that I was uh, had some amount of alcohol in my system for much of the time helped out too. Like I was relaxed. I was... Uh, loose and easy because I'll, I'll tell you right now i'm anytime my day job is at mind i am tense in some way because my life is pretty great i've told you guys this before uh, my family's great the the podcast uh while money would be nice i love the podcast i love going to cons i love you know writing for the site uh, i love the fact that other people write for the site and i don't have to write for the site as much as i used to but like my life is great except for that day job and and it just it clenches everything up man i hate it but anyway let's move on i don't want to complain about my day job i want to talk to you guys about the wonderful time i had at dragon con and it's time for another wonderful dragon con panel and this one this is a first here on the needless things podcast this one was for the horror track yes that's right mr derek tatum the director of the horror track invited me to be part of of some of their programming this year you've already heard the story about how i wasn't able to be uh, a part of as much as i wanted to be which still uh bothers me a bit uh, well well I, you know it's a bummer man I, I hated i missed out on the being a parent and a horror fan panel because uh, i was really looking forward to that as you guys know but i did get to take part in the shining panel which turned out to be a lot of fun we had some really good viewpoints lots of uh, lots of very different voices on this one, which I, I really appreciated. Uh, Karen Taylor, Clay Gilbert, and Thomas Mariani from Horror News Radio were all on the panel. And we had, it was one of those great conversations where you find different points of view that sort of enhance your own, uh, you know, they give you something else to think about. We, we didn't necessarily agree on every single thing, but we came to... A, a level of understanding about the different adaptations of The Shining. It was it was a really good group. I liked these guys a lot. And I really appreciate the fact that they sort of embraced me and let me run my mouth as much as I got to, which I, I did get a little nervous at a couple of at points that I was dominating it or taking over too much. So I, I there are a couple of spots where I think I end what i'm saying just a bit abruptly but it was that little voice in the back of my head that said phantom shut the fuck up and let everybody else talk too but i, I there's one point in this panel that i'm really proud of where i got the room 
and it, it's definitely one of my favorite moments from any panel I've ever done uh, because I do like to have that extended chain of sentences where I'm painting a picture and I capture everyone in the room, not just the audience, but the panelists too. And I, and I get them wrapped up in whatever I I'm spewing out of my brain at the time. And that totally happened in this one. And I think you guys will hear it. I think you guys will catch it. And it was very rewarding for me because, you know, uh, Karen Clay and Thomas all, you'll hear it. Uh, they're legit, man. I mean, they, they all do Karen and Clay are both writers. Thomas is on horror news radio, which you definitely need to go and check out. Uh, the guy is smart. The guy is sharp. I enjoyed being on the panel with him quite a bit. Uh, he, he actually reminded me of a much nicer version of another panelist I've worked with a whole lot. Uh, very well-informed, very well-spoken. And uh, Karen and Clay were, were just fantastic. I, I really enjoyed them, and I'm looking forward to having them on the show sooner than later. Uh, but these were people that within the first few minutes of conversation, I was like, okay, I dig these guys. And I wrapped them up, too, in in, in that one moment. And, and I think I, I did well. I, I feel like... Uh, Everybody that was in the room got a good feeling for for who and what Phantom Troublemaker is. Uh, I but my whole stack of business cards was gone after the thing was over, which is always rewarding to see. Now, as you guys listen to this panel, you are going to hear some background noise. And normally, I wouldn't mention something like this because my my thought is, well, if you don't point it out, they might not might not notice it. But you're going to notice it. We were right under an air conditioning unit, uh, an even more obtrusive one than we were uh, in the classics track room. And there's no way around it. But what I'd like you guys to do is before you get into the meat of the show, sit back and imagine that this panel is taking place far out in space on the Starship Enterprise. And what you hear in the background is just the operational hum of a mighty starship making its way through the cosmos. Just let that blend into the back of your head, and you'll be able to enjoy us uh, talking about The Shining. And that's really once... Give it a few minutes, and you, and you won't even notice it's there. I ran this thing through my simple processors as best I could, and it sounds a lot better than it initially did. But I think you'll, you know, after a couple of minutes, you'll either lose your mind or you'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, I can deal with this. So now, here are Karen Taylor, Clay Gilbert, and Thomas Mariani from Horror News Radio and myself talking about the book, the movie, the miniseries of The Shining, as well as a couple of other things that, that I wasn't necessarily prepared to talk about. But, but they had it because they're great. Enjoy. <laughs> Coming to the Dragon Con Horror Track. Next hour, we're going to be talking about The Shining versus The Shining. We'll be talking about uh, such controversial issues as Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's novel, 
what Stephen King thought of that, what we think of that, and the uh, TV miniseries version, and the novel itself, and uh, issues of adaptation, and all that sort of good stuff. Um, like, before we get into the, the meat of the uh, topic, if I could introduce myself and let all of our panelists introduce themselves. I'm Clay Gilbert. I'm a uh, novelist who writes science fiction and horror novels. And I've also been a uh, member of the horror track staff here for seven, eight years now. Close to ten years, something like that, anyway. Um, am I right? Uh, I'm Thomas Mariani. I am a podcaster. Uh, I podcast for Horror News Radio. Plug, plug, look at my shirt. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to be on the horror track this whole weekend. So you'll be able to see me on other panels uh, later in the week and over here. Wow. I'm uh, Karen Taylor, uh, best known for my Vampire Legacy series, which was published last century and reprinted this century. Yay! I'm a multi-centurational author. I know it's not the I've also written a ghost novel um, and a bunch of short stories, of which um, if you come to me this weekend anywhere and you tell me, Dinosaurs or vampires. I will give you while well, while well, supplies last a free copy of one or the other. You have to choose dinosaurs or vampires. Tough, but you can do it. I am Stan Troublemaker. I run NeedlessThingsSite.com and the Needless Things Podcast. And I host the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show show, which is tomorrow night at 10 p.m. if you're 18 or older. <laughs> That's a great title. Well, the reason we're here to talk about The Shining, and I'd like to say that my own perspective, first of all, let me, let me back up for a minute. This, this panel stems from a, a debate slash friendly conflict that I've had with uh, my good friend and the director of the horror track, Mr. Derek Tatum, there in the back, um, for several years about the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining, which... From my own perspective, I'd like to say it's a very good film. It's a classic horror film. Some people consider it the greatest horror film ever made. But And all those things I'd agree with, except for the greatest horror film ever made. It's definitely in the top 20. Um, but it's not a very good adaptation of King's novel, um, for better or worse. I'm a, I'm a novelist. I'm a book guy. and I, just, I, I tend to like to side with the book unless unless there's a reason not to. In this case, I, I definitely have to say that although it's an excellent film, it's a bad adaptation of the book, but that's just my own feeling, and, a lot, and it's an unpopular opinion. I was going to... Originally, I was thinking about the panel was comment about this as a panel about unpopular opinions, but uh, only mine is likely to be the unpopular opinion. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about issues like that, but that's where I stand on the, the whole divide. I, I side with the book. I think the book is, is fantastic. Um... I think the miniseries adaptation that Nick Garris scripted, I prefer it because it's closer to the book. Do I think it's a better movie than Kubrick's movie? No, but it's it's a better adaptation of the novel. Anyway, am I right? Uh, well, I stand more in favor of this. Uh, I think both can get along, guys. You know, shiny versus shining. I'm going to take the passages through videos and say that uh, I think both are great, but I think the bad adaptation is it's a reasonable argument to make. But at the same time, I think 
reworking thematically is the whole point of doing an adaptation, is that some things have to change, some details have to be gone, especially in, in a book that's over 900 pages long. It, it is a long book. It's a, a Stephen King book that's long. You're shocked. I'm actually on your side. Well, on everybody's side. I like both the, the uh, Stanley Kubrick movie and the, the novel. Um, for different reasons for both of them. And I also like the Simpsons adaptation. <laughs> which I think we should have put into the description. We all agree. You got the shitty. <laughs> the shitty. You want to get sued? <laughs> I am a big, big fan of the Stanley Kubrick movie. It's one I watch pretty much annually. Uh, and I don't think... It's not necessary for it to be called a good or bad adaptation. It's just Kubrick liked King's idea. I mean, I, I, everybody in here probably knows the story of Kubrick going through various, he wanted to do something horror-related, went through various novels and was throwing them at the wall. And uh, I think the anecdote is that his secretary went an hour without hearing something hit the wall and it was him reading The Shining. But I think Kubrick liked the idea of the Shining, uh, of the of what King had done, but I think he just didn't care much about the story. Right. Because if you look at The Shining as a film, you don't really ever get a sense of them as a family. You don't really get a sense of their character. Jack Nicholson, uh, for me personally, I, I don't feel him as a loving father trying hard to care for his family. No. Right off the bat, it's Jack Nicholson. He's bugged that's insane from now, the beginning. To but to qualify that, I, I, I'm 40 years old. I did not see The Shining when it came out in 1980. Uh, I only had years of reference for Jack Nicholson as an actor going into The Shining. So I wonder, you know, his career prior to that, he mostly had like tough guys, heavy kind of sinister guys. But I do wonder uh, what I bring to it kind of affects that a little bit. How do you feel about that father relationship that King portrays so well in the book of Jack Torrance's struggle with his demons? I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think there's a fundamental fundamental difference between and, and it's, I like the fact that you talked about the fact that he was not so much interested in the story that King told as the concept that King was conveying because the story of The Shining is a story about a man who wanted to be a loving father who's torn apart by alcohol. I mean, alcoholism is the demon in uh, in King's novel, and Cooper turned it into a movie about actual ghosts. And I mean, it's... That's an important difference. I, Jack Torrance in King's book is a loving father, and I think in the TV miniseries he's also more or less allowed to be that You, you well. get that a little bit more from Stephen Weber than you do, but it's Stephen yeah. Weber. It's right, the guy from right. Wings. He starts immediately, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that's the big difference. As people have said this before, it's just like the moment you see Jack Nicholson, it's like, oh, it's Jack Nicholson kind of go crazy. Right. But and yeah. coming off of yeah, coming off of, of one floor of the cuckoo's nest was the immediate, relatively immediate predecessor to The Shining in his filmography. It's probably not literally the case, but that's what people knew him for, and that's probably what got him the role of Jack Torrance was playing. Go ahead, go ahead, Karen. And, go it's, ahead. and it's telegraphed in that very first smile that he gives in, in the manager's yeah, office. Yeah, he's obviously. He gives that smile that Stuart Allman used to sort of go, oh, man. 
The interesting thing about that is that in the book, Allman is irritating. He, yeah. Well, in the book and in the... There are many more parallels between the miniseries and the novel. Well, the first three words of the novel are a vicious little prick, yes. which was yes. Jack Torrance's opinion of... of uh, and, and we get to see Torrance right off the bat with that struggle. Yeah. He does yeah. not like this guy, but he needs this job for his family. He needs this job for his future, so he's, he's feeling with it. Yeah, and that's those are the actions of a decent man, and you don't get that from frame one of Kubrick's film, you get a pissed off, crazy looking dude. Right. Well, I would make the argument that I, I will agree that that's not like the film adaptation doesn't go into a lot of the nuances I agree are in Stephen King's book, because like I said, 100 pages to do a movie, you uh, can't quite translate, but what I think works about Stephen King, uh, the Stanley Kubrick adaptation, is the fact that it's less of this man who cares, and it's more of, I think, the uh, Kubrick went for more of a, an abusive father who was already at that point. And I think it's an interesting spin on the idea is that less of this guy who has already gone down to alcoholism and more of somebody who is fully deep into that. Not somebody who's on the edge, like I would say in the book or even in the Stephen Webber adaptation, I agree. That's the best part about the Stephen Webber adaptation is Stephen Webber's performance really gets across the idea of this is a guy on the edge versus I think by the start of the Kubrick movie, he is like an abusive father. And I think that's an interesting turn to do. I'm not saying it's better, but I think it's a more interesting thing uh, to go with. He's abusive from the beginning, and you sort of get him going more insane over the course of staying in this hotel. Although, to be fair, he is abusive in the book. Yeah. He is. Yeah. But it's you know, my take on it is less about alcoholism and more about domestic abuse. From his father. Pairwork's film. And, no, the novel. The novel. Um, obviously, the abuse comes out in the, the just think about yeah. that scene of him, of Wendy trying to hit him with that. And I, I have come, I've come from an abusive relationship. Um, and I know that feeling. Oh my God. And, and, and it's done very well in the movie. It's also done very well in the book. It is. So you and especially when you start it? loving Jack first. Right. Yes, he broke yeah. Danny's arm, and yes, he's a drunk, and yes, he's capable of all these awful things. But a lot of domestic abuse starts and is allowed to continue because you love this person abusing you, whether it's a parent or a husband or a girlfriend or whatever. You love this person. The relationship usually starts out as a love relationship. So Stephen King, as always, gets those personal relationships. about a little piece of it's a minor thing but I can't figure out the reason for it and you and the audience may have an opinion on this as well in the book Torrance has been sober for I believe it's 18 months when they go up to the Overlook um, but in both of the adaptation adaptations they shorten the time uh, I believe in Kubrick's it's 5 months and I think in the miniseries it's 4 months and I can't figure out the reasoning for that because it makes uh, when he's talking to Wendy about why, you know, why can't, how long does it take for you to trust me again? 
dude, it's been four months. Right. Let's give them a little time to get over it. It's, it's an odd change that, to I, me, affects the story. I think there's a question in the movie who, how long he has stopped drinking because Wendy says he stopped drinking five, he stopped drinking when he broke Danny's arm. That's a lot longer than five months from when this book starts. Danny was just like two years old. He was still in diapers or training pants. So Wendy thinks he's quit drinking a lot longer than Jack, who will admit to those five months, worst months of his life, you know? <laughs> so so it, there's, there's a big difference in the in the, in the the movie about how long he's actually quit drinking. It indicates a man who's more on edge, I think. Yeah. Necessarily yeah. the book where, I think, once again, there's more of a teetering where it's like, there's that abusiveness there, but he's trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Versus I would say the Jack Nicholson version is much more on it, just like, I, I guess I'll do it because I'm staying with her. He's much less likable. I don't think Kubrick yeah, makes a whole big effort to to let us like Jack Forrest. No, Kubrick doesn't care if we like him. No, or Wendy. And that's one of my Steven biggest problems. Yeah, we like this man because it's much it's a much scarier story if you start liking him. Absolutely. And then you tear him down into madness. I agree. And I do want to make a point, and I'm sure you guys agree. Uh, at, at any time, talking about Kubrick's adaptation. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that he did things differently at all. We got a fantastic Stanley Kubrick movie out of what he chose to do. The decisions Kubrick made, he made because he's freaking Stanley Kubrick. So I mean, I'm not. I agree. With we're that. just addressing the changes and and how they affected the end result as being an adaptation. But I'm not saying the movie's any less, and I'm not saying he shouldn't have changed the things he changed because he had a vision. Well, I, I would argue that uh, someone sitting here not cares much about Wendy. I think it puts Danny and Wendy more in the center necessarily than the novel does, which is more from Jack's perspective. And I think that makes it an interesting change because I, I like the idea of when you adapt a book, you really do sort of change it cinematically. And I think changing that perspective is an interesting different spin on it because if I were to go into, like, I think that's the problem with the Stephen Weber series that sticks so close to the book. That ultimately it's just, why don't I just read the book instead of watching this miniseries of, I would argue, is inferior to just like a film production. It, it is, and in watching the miniseries over again, because I actually, I, anybody that knows me, I'm not a big research guy, but for this panel, for my first panel for the horror track, I read the book again and I watched both of the adaptations again because I wanted to have my stuff straight. Uh, and you're right, that miniseries, it's a chore. I mean, it is. There are things that I love about it, but there's also, you could cut out a lot. And and not really change the story too terribly much. Because I think they did a good job. Uh, you know, the actors that they had were, were relatable. You got the sense of family from them. But there's a lot of filler in there. Well, I you bet. could have done a faithful... It could, a faithful version of King's novel could be done in the length of time that of Kubrick's film. Sure. He made a deliberate choice out of his own directorial vision to not do that story. Yes. Because it wasn't what compelled him about King's book. He really the credits ought to say suggested by Stephen King's The Shining rather than based on then I might yeah. be happy with the movie. <laughs> but it, it is a fine film. It just it makes he makes certain choices. Well, you can argue he has to make those choices. I think it's a different indicator of what I like about the Kubrick movie versus the uh, Stephen King book. Stephen King book. I can't 
Sammy, okay, whatever. Um, it's, the, the Kubrick movie, I think, does an interesting job of portraying alcoholism on a visual level versus the Stephen King book doing it on a more text basis. You get a sense of this is a man who is an alcoholic versus, uh, I think, with the Kubrick movie, you get a sense of like the fact that this hotel slowly morphs into this living by place as opposed to the vacant place that you see in the like, first half of the movie. That I think it's an interesting visual contrast as opposed to the like detailed version of the book. I've always thought of the book as being about alcoholism. I like Karen's idea about it being about emotional abuse. I've never thought about it that way, but that makes a great deal of sense. I've read the novel twenty times over my life. But I think, but I think Kubrick's film is about isolation. I, I don't really. It's, it's pegged a lot as a film about insanity, and that's. The cheap, easy target for someone like me who doesn't particularly care for the film, but I think to do it justice, it's honestly about isolation and the effects of isolation, both as a geographic reality in a place like the Overlook and as an emotional metaphor in a relationship, a family relationship, where you have an abusive father who's done an action to his child that creates emotional distance between him and his child and emotional distance between him and his spouse. So you have two frame, two levels of isolation going on there. I, I think Kubrick's movie is a film about isolation. And, and the first play, of course, in the domestic abuse category is isolation. isolationism. Right. So if you change the emphasis of the story the way that, that Kubrick's adaptation does, that's going to change the things that you emphasize. Um, what do you think about that? No, I absolutely agree. Uh, well, in isolation, I mean, the that brings us to the hotel itself, which is as much a character absolutely. as Jack and Danny and Wendy are. And it's that is possibly my favorite thing about. I'm sure you guys have all watched Room 237. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't, you really need to. Uh, not because you're going to learn a whole lot, but just because it's interesting to see how wacky people are. <laughs> well, I love that Room 237 starts off with like the whole Indian burial ground theory, which makes a lot of sense given the visual imagery. Yes. And then it goes slowly bonkers. It's fascinating. <laughs> so fascinating. Well, exactly, yes. It, it mirrors the movie in a weird way. My, my favorite thing that... <laughs> yes. Or the centaur and, thing. And, uh, and we pick that up from The Shining. <laughs> My favorite thing that they discussed, though, was that Kubrick intentionally made the hotel disorienting and made rooms. Uh, the sets were built so that rooms were in places that they couldn't be, and it was a subtle thing that the audience in the back of their head would pick up on, like, wait, the where his office is, there can't be a window there. And that was all planned by him. Everything, everything you see in that movie, because Kubrick is the way that he is, there's not a single item that's just randomly placed. It's all a plan, and I love the idea of him creating this impossible set that can't physically exist just to mess with the audience. And, and it's, to me, he wants to make you un, as uncomfortable as possible, like as uneasy and disoriented as possible. And the god and what I like is that there's a lot of interesting cultural indicators that Cooper uses in the movie. Like, I love the recurring sort of, like, Looney Tunes element. They have the Roadrunner thing. But then there's also even, uh, I love the bit with the guy that has his head cut and has, like, 
great party, isn't it? It's a very Bugs Bunny style line. And I think that's part of it, what you're mentioning about how the police rooms don't make sense in this area. The lack of logical uh, connectivity, I think, is very key uh, that he, you know, Cooper really tries to establish. And he does that through like, some of those culture and here's like hint at the idea. There's a lot of that harbinger element with those. References. Yeah, absolutely. And again, even the, the clips of the cartoons are again about throwing you off balance. Like this is an odd thing to be in the middle of this now. I get the uh, I get the I get the throwing off balance point. Um, I I agree with that more from the standpoint of the cartoons and some of the cultural reference than, than necessarily the way he shows the the uh, layout of the sets. They may have been. I mean, I saw I saw the documentary too, but in the film. The, the way he chooses to move the camera, the, st- the steady cam shots, and um, there's a, there's a smoothness to it that doesn't convey that disorientation as well as perhaps Kubrick wants there wants it to be conveyed. I didn't get all. I got disoriented more from the progressive um, emotional deterioration that goes on throughout the film and throughout the story than I did from the actual the way the film is set up. Well, I agree with that. The shots. Uh, regardless of what he may encounter in the hotel, which we have some examples of in the room right now. Right. <laughs> uh, but the shots of Danny riding his big wheel through the hotel are very unnerving to me. The, the dissonance of the sound between the floor and the carpet and just the, it, it's almost the fact that it is the steady cam. Uh, to me, that's a very tense uh, way of, of shooting and it was one of the early films to really use the city cam it was like Rocky really invented that and then I think Cooper took that idea and used it as you mentioned with disorientation and really to get massive size of this place but just the isolation that uh, Mr. Clay was talking about well and you know room 237 itself the idea because when Danny spoiler alert when Danny, <laughs> when Danny is attacked by the woman, what? and they, I'm sorry, uh, and you know, initially they think it's Jack, and then you have this wonderful moment that the tables get turned when he says she attacked me, and Jack has that it's awful, but at the same time it's redemptive for him because we know he didn't do it, right? Uh, and he gets to look at Wendy and say, oh, 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 well, is that right? But they they come to the conclusion. He, he immediately knows. He gets that moment of satisfaction, but then immediately knows Wendy would never do that. So then they're faced with the prospect. There's somebody else in this place with them. That it's that big, and as a reader or as somebody watching the movie, the thought of being in, say, the Westin. Imagine being in the Westin with only two other people. How horrifying is that? I mean, put yourself, realistically, put yourself in that situation that you're in this hotel, just you and two other people for, what, eight months, six months, however long it is, and and the idea, there's somebody else in here. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys, I didn't mean to freak you out. There are plenty of us in here, it's cool. Right. <laughs> 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 that's, a, that's a pretty scary idea, the Weston. 
isolate the only two people. <laughs> what about the uh, the different approaches to the supernatural in in book as opposed to the two film versions? I've always felt like I mean there are certainly supernatural elements to Kubrick's movie, but I've always felt like he dials that down as much as he possibly can and emphasizes the psychological dimensions of it. Um, whereas King pretty much gives equal play to both the supernatural and the psychological um, aspects. What do you guys think? Uh, I, th- I mean, obviously, King's book has giant scary hedge monsters, so there, there's a big difference there. But Kubrick, yes, absolutely, I think, made an intentional effort to make the audience wonder, is this all in Jack's head? Are there really forces at work on him? Now, granted, we do have Danny's ability which is very clearly real from, from early in the movie. There's no questioning that. But Jack's struggle is more left to the viewer until Grady lets him out of the pantry. Yeah. Right. That is the moment where, uh, I don't know how blue we get here, the, the poo hits the fan, as it were, and the audience realizes, oh, there are bad, bad things on. afoot. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why I love the fact that instead of having the hedge monsters, which obviously you couldn't do in 1980, that he has this maze that I think is more of like a psychological yes. um, idea. And I think it's a great metaphor for the fact, especially the fact that there's that shot that Kubrick still claims, like, well, claimed for as long as he lived, that he didn't want to reveal how that was, uh, how he sort of had the shot of Jack looking over into the little model and then seeing uh, Wendy and Danny in the middle of it. I, I think it's a great example of how you sort of play on the fact that the hedge maze is really like the psychological collective of that entire family versus the hedge monsters. So they're literally hedge monsters. Yeah, that shot is brilliant. That shot is brilliant. It's just so wonderful. Well, and it's interesting in the, when you go to the miniseries and you look at the head. Uh, and I'll say this for the miniseries, because I... I don't want to bag on it because I think Mick Garris accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with it because he, he loves adapting Stephen King. He just does. Um, going into the miniseries, I hadn't seen it in years, but I had certain expectations about network television miniseries special effects, and I've got to give him a lot of credit because pretty much everything in it looks better than I expected it to. By today's standards, sure, not amazing, but for like 97 era CS pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. Looks great on television. And I've actually been to this family where they film the miniseries, and let me tell you, the miniseries is amazing because it made it look so much bigger and cooler than it actually did. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't look like that. It's kind of run down and kind of dreary. Nothing special. But in the miniseries, they made it look like suggested hotel. And so when we actually went, I was like, it's not what I expected. So for, for what you're saying to the budget and how well it is, they did a phenomenal job on the effects and making up that hotel look beautiful. So you didn't give it a good review on Yelp? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about atmosphere, right? So and they embrace it, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. But the hallways were way too crowded. <laughs> Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. The energy there is incredible. It's beautiful. And they do embrace, you know, the aspect of the show. It's a really amazing place to set. It's a 
Yeah, that's a good point. This King's youth, because because again, going back to my personal experience, I don't think of Stephen King as a young guy. Just because like he was, he's time. been around my whole life. Right, you're absolutely right. In 1980 or when they were making the movie, he was. He was a yeah. kid. Why would Why would Stanley Kubrick have you know really? And Kubrick told him that on the phone. He, he more or less told him that he wasn't interested in making um, a faithful rendition. King had written a screenplay that he offered Kubrick, and Kubrick looked at it and said, "No, I don't want to make that story. I want to make my my version." Well, well, you also have to consider the fact that at the time of doing Clockwork Orange, like Clockwork Orange really affected Kubrick just based on the release and the fact that that got such controversy in the UK and had so many people like bragging on like going against him, but it ended up he pulled it himself from people. Oh, I know, he did. So I, he was a very different man than like the decade or so that got to that point. That makes that, that makes a lot of sense. I, he may have uh, rethought his decision to be faithful, faithful to a, a story. And, I mean, Burgess's book may have affected him in ways that King's book didn't. Um, but then we have a question. Well, another thing, adding on what the gentleman said over here, people have talked about they take away from it what they bring to it. I didn't, I grew up around a bunch of alcoholics. I didn't get alcoholism out of it when I read it. The book is very much supernatural, possessing or driving a guy crazy to me. And the movie, divorced from that almost entirely, and is a guy just going batshit. But I didn't get the alcoholism level. It just seemed it wasn't abnormal to me at that stage and when sure, I read sure. it. And I don't know, maybe that's the approach he saw. He said, well, this is a great setup. This dude's being driven crazy. But that's a, you're right. He's completely pushed the, the supernatural only. It's really dandy. There's not much else until the end where you realize, oh, this little kid's been right. Wait, wait, wait a minute. And that's an excellent point as uh, as sort of abstract and bizarre as portions of Kubrick's adaptation are, that, that aspect of it is much less open to interpretation. Like you said, reading the book, you sort of take different things away from it depending on your own personal experience, but watching Kubrick's film, you take away from it, this is crazy. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I don't know. Oh, let's go with you first, then we'll go to you. I didn't pick up on the alcoholism as a central theme until I read the not the, the sequel, which really brings the front and center for the whole thing. But I was also just going to ask you your general thoughts of any of your read his sequel, the sequel about Danny Torrance. Absolutely, it was brilliant. I thought you're talking about Dr. Slick? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, it's not, he did the right thing in making it. I, there's a reason it's not called The Shining 2 or More Shining. Uh, it's still Shining, you know? Um, and in, in, in rooting it more in Danny's experiences and who Danny is as, as an older guy when he's Dan Torrance, not Danny Torrance anymore, um, and his own gifts and his own alcoholism. Um, it could have been done in, so, in a different way. I mean, another lesser writer might have written the Shining too, and actually made put as many callbacks as possible. There are some callbacks to the original story because they have to be, but they're there for reasons of the story. They don't feel like, oh, let's revisit the greatest hits of The Shining. Right. Um, and it's clearly also, and King made this point before the book was released. He made the point of emphasizing to his his readers that it's a sequel to his novel, and he got in one last 
one more dig about Kubrick's film. It's not a sequel to Kubrick's movie. Um, he made it very clear. Uh, but it's also not, you know, just a cheap sequel to his novel either. It's a spiritual follow-up that deals with the themes that he introduced and actually progresses the story further. And there's the supernatural elements in Dr. Sleep are both more, I think, more viscerally savage and yet, and also more spiritual. There's a warm spirituality to a lot of Dr. Sleep and there's also a savagery that is not present in the supernatural aspects of the original novel. All the savagery comes from human emotion in, in the original novel. Go ahead. One of the things I wanted to talk about, I think uh, you guys brought up the, uh, the way Wendy is portrayed uh, compared from the book to the to the Kubrick movie. And I, most people, I'm sure, have seen the Kubrick film have also seen that great documentary that the right. Kubrick directed. And you see just what Shelley Duvall went through in and that, and I think, you know, it's, the more, I'm like you, I watch the movie annually. I watch Kubrick's movie annually. I think it's amazing. But uh, it's it's interesting to really, the more you watch it, the more you see that there is, even as meek and as seemingly powerless Shelley Duvall's Wendy is, there are moments where she can stand up to Jack. And there's the moment after she finds the manuscripts, where I think is a big part of it, and then when she's bringing him into the, uh, and then subsequently when she brings him into the uh, meat locker. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think Shelley Duvall's performance in the show is really underrated. Mm-hmm. I, I think you really get a sense of uh, what, what we're talking about with like that loss of Samuel and stuff. I think you really need, as much as you have uh, Jack Nicholson, I think you really do need that counterbalance with uh, Shelley Duvall. I think she does a phenomenal job of that. And despite being nominated for Razzie at the time, which Razzie don't matter. Um, but I, I think they, especially when as things go more and more insane, especially when she's going from room to room, seeing all this stuff, you really get a sense of that horror. And I think she's really underrated in that term. Does anyone agree with that? Or Absolutely, I do. I mean, I think I think she's an underrated actress in general, um, and she does the unhinged um, and the progression from. Be emotionally invested to the unhinged really well. I mean, she does it as well as Nicholson does it in her way. Yeah, I, I've, um, I, I like her character. I, I, I haven't read, I have to admit, I haven't read The Full Shining since it came out. And my roommate tricked me by telling me it was a nice little story about one with ESP. That wasn't on the jacket at the time. Well, I, I, had, I had a few problems with certain this was before I became a horror writer now I don't have problems with anything I had problems with ghosts I had problems with people being smashed up with heavy objects and I had problems with people being possessed this damn book pushed all my body I got halfway through I couldn't I couldn't stop reading it and I gave it right back to her the next day and said I don't ever want to see this book again it terrified me um, but I'm rereading it again, and I didn't get far enough for this panel. But the Wendy in, similarly to Jack Torrance in um, the novel, Wendy undergoes this, this development. She seems to me to be a much stronger person 
in the fact that they bring up how she was contemplating divorcing him, and once again, I'm taking this from the woman's point of view, but that's a huge step for an abused woman to say, even to herself, I'm going to divorce him. And I think Shelley Duvall's character development in the movie is a little bit lacking, although she did a hell of a good job mm-hmm. with, the, with the crazy eyes and the, and the base on that. But she didn't do actually a good enough job with the base and then left. But you know, that would have been my book. That Jack Torrance would be lying dead at the bottom of it. <laughs> um, but I didn't write it, so. I think Duval's performance is incredible. I think she gave Kubrick exactly what he wanted, but I just don't like her character in that movie. I don't like the way Wendy is portrayed in the movie. My trouble with Shelley Duval is I, I saw Popeye. But you up front, talks about what you talked about, like the, the sort of impossible hotel in The Shining, which I found really fascinating. Yeah. And as addicted as I am to the novel, and as much as I love uh, the movie, because I see them as really two separate entities. Yeah, completely. Um, I thought that that was a really interesting way to describe how, I guess, the, the hotel was attacking them, was to show all these uncomfortable angles and camera pull-ins and impossible ways like there shouldn't be a staircase here and this hallway shouldn't go that way because I don't know if anyone in here has read House of Leaves, but I don't like hallways because I don't like Um, But I thought, uh, and I agree with you, like, with the whole camera movement and everything, like, it being really jarring. He was one of, I mean, he really just took a, a trophy ways to look at certain angles. Like, one of my favorite is when he's trapped in the pantry and Kubrick is just looking Can you explain right to up. me what that angle is? I, I just saw the movie recently. I can't figure out what the thing is the spell that's sticking up and it's just... I don't, is I don't it, rightly is it, know. Is it just they did that for, for how disorienting it was? Because it was I, incredibly I, disorienting. I think that's I, it. I, I think trying it's... to fit it into is that you really have to adapt it to a different medium. And I think Cooper did such a phenomenal job of doing that a lot with, I agree, there's not a lot of development in the say, the Wendy character or the Jack character, but it's using a lot of visual shorthand to get those ideas yeah, across. It's really yes. Actually, I would say there's there multiple times you brought up like how he shorted the time span of how Jack's 
spin off like the server Wendy's development, like development of characters is I think the shorter the time makes them a lot different and better in a way. Like Wendy, she's not at the point of like divorcing her yet, but it's a shorter time span. She she in her mind he's been sober forever, so she doesn't have that thought span of like, oh I need to divorce him now at all. Because he's still he's crazy but he's sober. Jack, by making his time span of being sober five months, maybe four months, he's weak willed. And thus the hotel is able to actually have its effect on him. While Wendy doesn't see it until after she starts getting a little freaked out by Jack trying to kill him. Yeah, I agree. There's a, there's a lot of like fun little visual shorthands or even just like brief interactions that make that clear. Like I love the line so much. Just like, I like to know who's buying my drinks, like, it, it really establishes the fact that this hotel has a hold over him. This was the factor of like promising this alcohol, having a literal interpretation of it. That likely said, we don't even know if the alcohol's real. We don't know what the hell he's doing at that point. Because they established that the alcohol's all gone from the hotel at that point. Um, I just wanted to say, if we talk about little short films on the internet, if you've never seen it, you need to look it up. It's the alternate trailer for um, The Shining. Where they play Salisbury Hill in the background, yeah. and it's a nice little story. It's the story my roommate said she was giving me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story about a, a man and his, his son. And they just use cuts from the movie. It's just clever what you can do with that. I think that is a very good point about them shortening the sobriety time for the movie. It's another instance of shorthand for kind of getting to it quicker because in the in the novel we have the opportunity to see Jack unraveling a bit more, uh, and he has been, you know, for those eighteen months he's been solid. So it's actually more impactful in the novel when he does start to lose it because he he had it together. But in the movie, again, we got to get to the point here. We've got Jack Nicholson. Let's go. I think that just underscores the fact that he's getting to a different point. It's, it's not, it's getting, Cooper is getting to a different point than King is getting to. Yes. It's just, you know, a different point. Uh, any other comments or questions from the crowd? Yes, what are your thoughts on the Shining Opera that you're saying? Did that happen? Yes, it did happen. I haven't heard it actually or seen it. That's, that's about totally did not even think about that. That's definitely something to look into. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. There are clips online you can find. Yeah. It's a story that would work operatically for a lot of reasons. Oh, yeah. It's an epic. It's an epic Yes. And in that sense, I mean, Kubrick's version definitely flows and looks more like something you would associate with an opera. I mean, you can probably take that, I've not heard that opera, but you can probably take that and set it to Kubrick's film in the same way that some people like to put Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon to The Wizard of Oz. And I hope somebody goes home and does that now that we've raised the specter of doing that. It is all the difference in the world between, like, what I like about, um, I think one of the few Stephen King adaptations, like, it's a great adaptation and a great film, is Carrie. Here's the thing, this is the best example, just like it's really close to the novel, removes enough things, but I, I think it still works as a film on its own. And I think that's all the in the world, because it's also a shorter book for King anyway. So I, I think it's just all different. I mean, you've seen other you know, adaptations, how well 
those tend to work. Chrono uh, works really well. True. Right. We had another comment over here. I was just going to touch on, like, in, in a King novel, Jack's sitting at the bar and kind of like, you know, unraveling. He's got this music box there, kind of like, you know, it's like part of like how like the hotel is drawing him in with the music box. And like, I just, you know, it's obviously not in the film. And like, I feel like that would have been an easy thing to do. You know, it wouldn't have been like a hard thing to incorporate into the film. But like, I don't know, I just wondered what y'all thought about that. I think it would just be an extra element. I think Kubrick had enough tools to work with um, with what he did use that I think that, for, for his purposes, I think that almost would have just been distracting a little bit. I, I think he he had enough to work with already. What do you guys think? I agree with that. I mean, for he'd already decided that the goal he was going for and the, the approach he was taking in the music box wouldn't have added anything to it. He is. I mean, whatever else I, I may occasionally, more than occasionally, say about the about his film of The Shining, Kubrick was a master craftsman. He knew his tools. He knew how to use cinema, how to use the, the language of cinema in terms of camera angles and in terms of um, steady cam shots and you know other things and acting and facial expressions. He knew all those tools, and um, he did things the way he wanted to do. And that, music box would have just been a nice Blu-ray extra. You know, yeah, it wouldn't have been yeah. anything that would have added to the substance or the impact of this film. And they almost kind of had that with the, are we all aware of the uh, deleted ending that was on The Shining? That was there for a bit. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. Well, yeah, there's a deleted ending that basically had um, a recurring factor with a, a ball. Sort of the ball that you see in the film at one point. You see later on with like the doctors, so, like the, at the end of the story, when you from the doctor's office and Doctor hands Danny the ball. So it was just sort of, that was the original indicator of kind of what he wanted to do. So sort of a reprising element like the music box. But uh, he edited that, and I think it was from the film. Was this the one too. where he like famously cut it out after he'd been out like for a yeah. week? Yeah, in the yeah. UK. It was originally in the UK. And then well, that footage hasn't popped up, but I'm aware of it, at least from like photos and script pages and stuff. Yeah. It's almost like an inception kind of ending. Mm-hmm. Have that stick on the end. Uh, it doesn't add anything as a kind of raises unnecessary question. But is the ball still spinning, right. Clay? <laughs> <laughs> is it still spinning or bouncing? <laughs> well, the ball can't spin for too terribly much longer. <laughs> 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 uh, right. I think he was first. Yeah, right, right. All right. So I've, just, I've actually never read the novel. I've seen the movie and I've seen the mini series. So I didn't think it compared to. And what's interesting is I think some of the uh, discussion I'm hearing, I didn't get that same impression when I watched the film. I always knew, I always thought it was a supernatural element driving Jack Nicholson's character, you know, insane. Because at the very beginning of the story, they set up a fantastical element with DSP, which puts you in that movie, puts you in that universe, and these things are possible. And also with the character of Mandy, you know, uh, it's like, well, where did he get that from? And, and in my mind, I always thought he got it from his dad, by the family. Uh, and that's what gave the, the, the mechanism for the hotel to take hold of Jack. That it gave him the tunnel, the, the path that they needed to get him. I think that's a good point because Wendy is the only one who doesn't have uh, sort of a direct connection with these supernatural forces. That's so, right, but she they they don't try to work through her in no, any way. No. They she doesn't she doesn't have a, the experience in the same visceral way that Jack and Danny do. 
and, and you can see that connection with the stuff they bring certain shots, like whenever uh, Danny's talking to Dick Holland, the Scottman Crothers version of it, at least you sort of see that connection. That, that's still in the book, but in the film, they sort of visually indicate the fact that whenever Danny talks to uh, Dick, it's very similar to whenever Jack talks to, say, Boyd. There's a visual indicator to sort of support what you're saying, but I think the book sort of hints more at the idea that it is specifically from Jack's side, yeah. I actually didn't know that, and that's interesting because 
one of the, in addition to all the other elements of filmmaking that Kubrick does so well, one of the other elements that I think is essential to that movie, in particular, the way he chooses and uses music. And the fact yeah. that he rarely uses original score, although there are a couple cuts Wendy Carlos did, a lot of pre-existing score and the music, and just the way he uses that music is just adds, and the specific type of music he uses too, is just adds to the atmosphere of that movie. That um, I think we're running low on time, but I, I will agree with that, especially the use of uh, the Master Raid song yeah. and the Midnight of the Stars, and the airiness, I think, really adds to the sort of vacant emptiness of the hotel and that isolation that we were talking about. I actually agree. But, um, any, like, you think one more comment, anybody? Anybody? Get, yes, you in the back. Well, just going back to the unsettling thing, Much larger role in the book in the minute. That's the signal that this shit just got real. If you hadn't already picked up on the fact, <laughs> 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 well, well right. and, and you can tell that from just like uh, Scatman's uh, actual appearance, because the big the, the filmmaking element of that is that he did hundreds of takes. Made Scatman do hundreds of takes. To the point where by the end of it, he was just begging, like, "What do you want?" Right. Look on his face. It really shows. You know, yeah. Uh, what I'd like, if it's okay with you guys, because this, this will be a future episode of the Needless Things podcast, I'd like to run down the line and everybody could drive your Twitter handles, tell us about your projects, uh, to close it out for everybody in the room. All right. Well, my Twitter handle is claygilbert one and I'm currently working on uh, Anna's Exile, which is the sequel to my science fiction romance novel, Anna, and I'm also working on uh, a novel called Cassie's Song, which is the sequel to my vampire novel, Dark Road to Paradise. Uh, my Twitter handle is at not the who's Tommy. Complicated, but worth it. For that <laughs> um, but I do stuff for uh, gruesomemagazine.com. I'm a co-managing editor of oneofus.net, and I also do uh, horror news radio and decades of horror in the 1980s, a lot of horror movie genres, stuff like that. Okay, um, I, I do have a, a Twitter ID. It's Karen Taylor 53, um, but I'm not very, very often because I just don't get there. <laughs> Sorry. Amen. Uh, you can tell my age just from that. Nothing else. Um, I'm on Facebook a lot. I'm Carrie Taylor, writer of Supernatural Tales. Um, currently, I've got, um, I discovered the joy of audiobooks. So my new um, five-story erotic horror collection is just out on audiobook. It's called Love Monsters, and it's um, fun and dirty. That's the best kind all right. Thank you for coming. Thank you. 
Go check out Clay Gilbert and Karen Taylor online, and please go check out Horror News Radio. They're they're hot shit, guys. Uh, <laughs> go to supportphantom.com and see the new reward levels that I have posted. I keep adjusting this thing to try and attract listeners and supporters, so maybe there is a new level you would be interested in supporting. I might talk a little bit more about that next time uh, when I'm not dealing with back hassle. Uh, I also want to put it to you guys that, well, let you guys know, I have two more Dragon Con panels, but we only have one more week before 31 Days of Halloween starts. So, what I'm going to have to do is next week is going to be the G.I. Joe Larry Hama panel. Because it's Larry Hama and it's important to me that that get up. And we didn't just record another episode about G.I. Joe's, because that's the thing. We did our Big Trouble in Little China episode uh, not too long ago, and the other panel that I have is Big Trouble in Little China. It's a fantastic panel. You're going to enjoy it, but it's going to have to wait until probably November to go up. And and I hate to to delay it, but that's just how it shook out. That's how things worked out. Uh, I, I really wanted to get that conversation with Mike Gordon in to kick off the Dragon Con podcasts or the post-Dragon Con podcast. And uh, it, it just knocked that one back, which I think is fine, because if we get a little distance between Big Trouble and Little China episodes, then that'll be better. And, and, and believe me, I'll do a Big Trouble and Little China episode every other month and be happy about it. Uh, so, next week, look forward to uh, the Larry Hama interview that is absolutely fantastic. And then sometime in November, we'll get around to the Big Trouble and Little China panel. And next month... 31 Days of Halloween! I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.